That is Eddie Vega. And that is Chiburduña. And this is Words. And Shit. Brought to you by the Blah Poetry Spot and Write Art Out. The show where you get to know the person behind the poetry. So, Chibi. Eddie. Um, you're bilingual, aren't you? I am. I am. I, I would say, you know, and I, that's bilingual with an asterisk after it. I'm very fluent in English and I am conversationally fluent in Spanish. All right. Well, do you ever conversationally mix up the two? <laughs> you know what? No, at, at all. Um, and it's, it's an interesting thing because, you know, I grew up speaking both languages, but it was always one or the other, you know? And it was a very, there was a hard divide too, because I think this was because my parents didn't want me to lose the Spanish. Um, so at home, we had to speak only Spanish, right? And then that almost became a little oppressive to where when I wasn't at home, I wanted to speak only English, you know? <laughs> um, and then, you know, both of my parents are from like deep, deep Mexico, you know, Guadalajara, Mexico City, Veracruz, like that, those kind of areas. And so this idea of what we now know as Spanglish was foreign to them. So they didn't naturally speak that way either. They spoke one or the other. You know, so I didn't have that. And I remember at my mother's graduation, my aunt who flew in from Indiana, who's from Mexico, but lives in Indiana, she was sitting there and she's overhearing the conversation of the woman sitting behind her as these people are walking across the stage. And she says, well, you can always tell cuáles son the ones who don't know how to wear tacones. <laughs> and she wrote it, she immediately wrote it down because this idea of like blending the two languages was so foreign to her. She was like, yeah. what was that, you know? How about you? Because you grew up in the real well, world. Well, yeah, yeah. But I want to talk about that, that blending of the language because that happened. I was on a bus once uh, here in San Antonio. And uh, this, this guy behind me who um, I, I, gotten, I don't say got to know him, but he, he was on a lot of the same buses that I was on. So, you know, tacitly knew this guy. Um, all of a sudden said, um, it, took, it took him 16 months to give me the disability, pero, pero cuando me dan en cheque, me voy a comprar un cavalier, you know? And I, I did the same thing. I wrote it. That's how I remember that line. I wrote it down because, uh -huh. and I put it in a poem because I just love the way that that mixed together so beautifully, so seamlessly, you know? And I grew up, I grew up speaking uh, Spanish until I was like five. And then uh, I grew up, then after that was English. So like you said, just like you, my, my, English is a lot better than my Spanish. Um, and in the last, last, last few years, I've been mixing a lot more of these tongues as a lot of the people that I grew up with did mm -hmm. and continue to do. Mm -hmm. My father's from Mexico, mm -hmm. so it was Spanish for him. But as I listen to him talk now, he speaks a lot more Tejano. Mm, Tejano, right? There, yeah. is, there is a musicality. There's, there's, there's a beauty when done... I don't want to say when done right, but when done in a certain way, there is this like beautiful seamlessness that happens when you weave the two languages in and out of each other. Uh, and we had the opportunity to have a conversation with a phenomenal poet who has done that so brilliantly throughout her career. 
Uh, And we had a really lengthy conversation about language and representation in language and how Latinx voices are being celebrated more and more these days. Um, So let's dive into that conversation. We have with us Carmen Tafoya, a native of San Antonio's West Side Barrios and the author of more than 30 books. Carmen Tafoya became San Antonio's first city poet laureate in 2012 and in 2015 was named State Poet Laureate of Texas. She's Professor Emeritus at UTSA, recipient of numerous awards, including the America's Award, five International Latino Book First Prizes, and recognition by the National Association of Chicano Studies for giving voice to the peoples and cultures of this land. She still credits her inspiration to La Gente de San Antonio, this river, and the voices of ancestors whispering over her shoulder. (laughs) That's right. Uh, A few years ago, uh, Gemini Inc., I uh, had a program back when I wanted to be a, uh, uh, do more poetry uh, more often uh, with purpose. And they had a program uh, of mentorship. I applied and uh, Karaman was my mentor for about a year. She taught mm-hmm. me a lot of very, very important things. And I'm very honored that she was my mentor. She told me that, you know, you don't have to capitalize every uh, first letter in your uh, verse. Yes, it's true. Capitalize the ones that's important. And she also said, Every line has to be important. I've already, and I've always taken that to heart. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, is she here? Dun, dun, dun. I'm very honored to be here and be able to do some reading today and some talking with you guys. But before I get started, I have to say to uh, Mr. Eddie Vega, the talk about it king of the world, um, I love the way you came up with the title for the program. Because I think words and shit really describes a writer's life. Um, you know, they say that nothing bad can ever happen to a writer because it's all material. Something bad happens to you and you use it as material to write about. Mm-hmm. But I think there's more to it than that. Because I think that all of us that are word crafters, we're always trying to take that gaka that falls on us from up above. And instead of just wallowing in it, we pick it up, we shape it, we sculpt it, we put a little paint on it, we stick it in the kiln and bake it. We might uh, add a, a musical score to it or a film script to it. We take the things from our everyday life and we try to present them in such a way that they have meaning and that they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's what artists do. And yeah. I think that's definitely what word artists do. So what do we do but live in a world full of, full of words and caca? And we take them and turn it into something productive. I think there's going to be a poem about air conditioning yeah. coming from TV pretty right. soon. <laughs> Wanting to get people to see with different eyes. Mm-hmm. And to see that it's not just caca. It's also fertilizer. You know, mm-hmm. so, um, yes, yeah, uh, grateful to you for your your genius, your creative genius. Uh, your it wasn't genius. just me. There was a committee. There's <laughs> a committee. There was a <laughs> uh, I might have had the idea about words and shit, and there were some that, but uh, there were some detractors who were like, "We can't do that." And we're like, we'll yeah. "Put an asterisk." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think we all came to that same conclusion. Like, yeah, that's. Um, 
that's the that's the writer's life. There's words and there's shit, and everything just comes from it. So it's, yeah, it becomes fertilizer. It makes wonderful things grow. Uh, we are determined that no I matter love it. what alchemy, I like that. We're going to make use of it. It's going to be good, beautiful. In Spanish, it sounds so much better than fertilizer. Abono, <laughs> you know, beautiful abono. It sounds like it's halfway abono. to rich already. Mm. So I love it. better abono. Well, yeah. Carmen, we're yeah. so excited to have you on here. Let us start off the way we do every week and just hand the floor over to you so that we can hear some amazing words and then we'll come back and talk about shit. <laughs> All right. Well, for those of you out there who haven't had supper yet and therefore you're just thinking about food, I might as well, instead of fighting, I might as well just go with the flow and I'm going to read you uh, something about food, uh, which I like to write about anyway. Uh, but this one's called... Estos taquitos, I, I wrote it in Spanish first and then I wrote it in English. And then most of the time when I read it, I kind of mix the two up because that's Tex-Mex is my native language anyway. So um, I'll read it to you like that, entre inglés and Spanish. Um, estos taquitos, these taquitos que traigo yo, I made for you, for your mouth, whose taste I know so well. I know your belly too and your hungers your sighs and your desires, the rhythm of your chest, the softness of your breath, the way you burn me with your gaze, fill me with the heat of your skin, tus ojos medio cerrados, mis labios medio abiertos, my shivering spine, your hands, mis suspiros, your mouth, whose taste I know so well. En estos taquitos, la carne, the meat is chopped small and soft, for that missing tooth of yours. They're stuffed with tomates, sprinkled with cilantro, covered with chile that bites, un besito de sal, and lemon drizzled like summer rain. Always had plenty of frijoles. These taquitos I made for you, for your mouth, whose taste I know so well. So we start off with something kind of uh, playful, and in very simple language, because a lot of people think that to be a poet, you have to have only the fancy words and the very flowery things. And of course, most poets will tell you, no, the good poetry sometimes is based in the very everyday statements, but to put them together in a very um, poetic way, in a very meaningful way. Um, when I started writing right here in San Antonio, a lot of uh, publishers in textbooks and English classes and everything didn't want anything to do with any Spanish words in anything. In fact, even your name had to be changed if it was too Spanish. They'd want you to go back like Victoria Cardona became Vicky Carr and, and uh, Juanita Baez became Joan Baez and things like that because you couldn't, you, it was not acceptable. Even uh, 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 Richie Valence was Ricardo Valenzuela, but, but they didn't want the sound of Spanish words, the prejudices, the biases, the, the state law, the school laws that said no speaking in Spanish. So when I started writing, and it was during the Chicano movement, um, 1970s, when I really started seriously writing for publication, um, I incorporated Spanish and English in my poems. And I got a lot of flack back, and I got a lot of people who tell me, you know, Carmen, you could get published a lot more if you just wrote all in Spanish or all in English, but don't go mixing them up like that. 
And that wasn't what was natural to me. So um, this is a poem about that time period when I get a lot of criticism for not writing in just one language. And it's called write as incorrect. And then the next time you hear it, it's write like escribir. So anyway, write in one language. Writing one language, they say. An agent sit and glare, hairy brows over foreign words and almost try and hope say, it's not French, is it? But it isn't, nor is my mind. When I try tight, clean line, manicured to be like leave it to Beaver's house, straight sidewalk, so square, hedges, and if there's one on this side, there's also one on that, equally paced, place, space, control. You seem to lose control of the line in this one, he says. It all explodes. I see bilingual beautiful explosions. Two worlds collide. Two tongues dance inside the cheek together. Por aquí poquito en a dash, allá también. Salsa, cha-cha, disco, polka, rock, that Texan cumbia, and amorcajete mezcla. But restrain yourself. The man pleads sanity. Trim the excess. Just enough and nothing more. Think shaker room and lots of light. Two windows, Puritan clean floors, and chairs hanging up on simple pegs. Three. But las palabritas mías are straining at the yoke. Two-headed sunflowers peeking through St. Moderatius grass, waiting for familias grandes, garden growing wild, Mexican yerbitas, spices, rosas, baby trees, nurture, así, muy natural. No one knows yet if they're two years old and should be weaned or pruned or toilet trained. But they are given only agua y cariñitos, shade and sun and compañía. City inspection crew, house and gardens crew, publication crew agree. The lack of discipline, lack of puritan, purity. Chaucer must have felt like this, the old Pachuco playing his Tex-Mex onto the page, and even then the critic said, write in one language. But when he pondered all that cleanness, so controlled, forms halved, he just could not deny his own familia, primos from both sides, weeds that like to crawl over sidewalks, juntarse, visit, stretch out, comfy, natural, and lusty, hybrid wealth and told them it was just because he was undisciplined, unpolished, and did not know how to make love with just one person in the room or on the page. And he, like me, did what he wanted anyway. But you, like they, want shaker hallways while I grow Mexican gardens and weed-rich backyards. There are too many colors in the marketplace to play modest when Mexico and Gloria Rodriguez both say, Estos gringos con su match, match, y a mí me gusta mix, mix. There are too many cariños to be created to stay within the lines too many times when I want to tell you there is room here for two tongues inside this kiss. And then I want to come forward a little bit to um, something more recent. We've been living in tough times. I think the world always has tough times, but right now we got some super tough ones. So, um, and we've been through this. We've been through worse than this. Um, it just, it doesn't come usually more than once a century or so. So um, this was written actually a couple of years ago, but everything was beginning to go in that direction. The destruction of the environment, the uh, treatment of human beings as if they were 
non-human. Um, so this was called What to Do While Awaiting the Angel of Death or the Angel of Life. Plant softly, majestically, and always con respeto y amor. Seeds are our children from a different mother. Knights are our angels, restoring pools of rest and planning. Even in times when we hide secret blood painted on our doors with brushes only we can see, with plumas only we still remember how to use, even then the angels still remember how to find us, huddled, shivering, praying, breathing in our dreams for dawn, Sueños del amanecer, sueños de la libertad, squeezing all the seeds we can in each palm, awaiting just one drop of stubborn sunlight, one ungestapoed heartful of dirt, one action brave enough to grow resistance, change, love. And then this next one is uh, to my favorite holiday, Dia de los Muertos. And uh, it's called Altar to the Dead. We dance with the dead. We serve them at our kitchen table. We dance with the dead. We serenade them on our knees. We smash the piñata of time with fiesta-colored broomsticks. And no, los muertos are forever with us. Woven into our veins, into our dreams. We dance with the dead. Twirl them in una polka sabrosita, share their bread, pour out our lungs in song, spend a day with them, floating beyond the pull of life, beyond the superficial semblance of death, beyond the flesh, beyond the mind, our souls awake to the infinite power of laughing spirit, creator, destroyer, transformer, love, more relevant than a simple borderline between life and death. And then uh, the last one I'd like to read to you guys here at the beginning is, uh, is a kid's poem um, that I wrote for an anthology on, on body image. And uh, so many times um, I think we think that poetry or any kind of writing is just this big objective distant thing and I love to hear it in people's voices. So this one is in the voice of a, of a young middle schooler, a young middle school girl and it's called A Thousand Years. Mama says I'm too fat. Tia says I'm too skinny. My brother says my hair's too bushy while well, I think my hair's too straight. At school, I feel that I'm too short but when I'm around my cousin Lupe, I feel like a tall, gawky giant. Lupe's skin is like pale peaches, and the tips of her hair have gold streaks. But my skin's so dark, the tough girls at school call me La Prieta. And Sammy from next door just laughs and says he can't see me at midnight. Grandma catches me staring at Lupe's skin, and she can tell what I'm thinking. Why can't I have skin like pale peaches? I ask her later when we're alone in the kitchen and only the cake on the table can hear us. Then who would have skin like dark chocolate, she says. And who would want to live in a world without chocolate? 
I'm still frowning as she begins to frost the cake, rainbow sprinkles over chocolate fudge. Pero grandma, the girls with dark chocolate faces are never on the magazine covers or starring in the movies, I pout. Well, they should be, she insists. Why can't I just be tall and slim and skin like pale peaches and hair with gold tips and teachers would smile at me that special way when they think you're so cute and so smart just because of the way you look outside your skin? Later that day, after the dishes have been cleared from the table and the birthday cake all eaten down to just crumbs, a smidge of the chocolate fudge still on the side with one sliver of white peach from the filling that didn't make it onto the serving spoon, I hear Lupe complaining to grandma. I hate my skin, she says. Kids at school call me la huera and la gringa, and I don't look anything like the Virgin de Guadalupe for whom I was named. She's a beautiful cinnamon chocolate, and I'm like those white peaches that have no color and are just too pale. Grandma says, who wants to live in a world without sweet pale peaches? Besides, nothing can stop you from being who you want to be. You don't need to change your skin or your height or your shape. You just have to change the way your eyes see. I think to myself, who made these rules up anyway? If someone from another planet checks in a thousand years from now to study who our civilization was and what we were like, I'll leave them a letter inside the ruins that have my bones. It'll say, we were beautiful so beautiful, of a beautiful color you purple people have never seen. Some of us were the color of fruits and some the color of spices. Some of us were as tall as young trees, shooting, stretching as if to the sky, and some were short and round like pearls. Some were solid like walls, and some quivered in the wind like feathers. And then magically, we could change our shapes from skinny to fat, to middling, depending who was looking at us. But we were all beautiful, all beautiful. And I was beautiful too. That's what I'd tell those Martians a thousand years from now. It's a little sampling of um, some of the Applause, 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 applause. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was that was excellent. There's a lot, there's gonna be a lot of comments, um, Dr. Tafoya, so you can uh you can go back and read those. Uh clearly you have had quite a career. Uh you were the first San Antonio poet laureate. You know, and, and I want to start by asking about that position. You were the first San Antonio Poet Laureate. You were a Texas Poet Laureate. And now we have uh, Andrea Vocab Sanderson as the San Antonio Poet Laureate, whose, whose poem is literally painted across the streets of San Antonio. You know, like, how do you feel about that position, you know, of San Antonio Poet Laureate and how has it evolved in its, in, its I'm weight very, and its very importance? I'm excited about our city and our community because I think we get it, we support it, we, we like reverberate at the same vibe level or something with the arts in this city. And not every city acts the way ours does. And our city didn't always provide the official support. We always enjoyed poetry and we always enjoyed uh, writers and, and artists, 
but now there's a there's like a commitment even even with all the problems that we have with, with finances and budgets and everybody wondering what's going to happen with budgets being cut um but i was so tickled because it was so easy to be poet laureate of this kind of a community mm. people got into it all of unexpected corners of the city got into it i mean the san antonio composers came to me and said can we have some of your poems so we can make some songs about them? Um, and the kindergarten teachers came to me and said, um, the kids, the kids want to write uh, some poems, you know, based on, on the pattern that you did in this one poem of yours. Um, and it, so everybody from all the different ages, los viejitos would come in and they'd say, pues yo conozco un poema y lo puedo declamar, pero en español. So, oh, good. So then we did. So I felt like we were able to get everybody really excited about poetry. It was a good way to start. I was very honored to be able to be the the uh, initial, the uh, inaugural uh, poet laureate of San Antonio. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we were first, weren't we? San Antonio yes. was the first Texas City to have a poet major laureate, Texas City to have, to have, a have poet uh, laureate. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and not only that, but uh, San Antonio had not had. Um, really a good representation among the state poets laureates. Um, they came from Dallas, they came from Fort Worth, they came from places north, maybe as far south as Austin, but they kind of ignored, um, you know, San Antonio and anything south. Mm -hmm. And then we start hitting a run, you know, um, uh, Rose Catacalos was state poet laureate. Um, and then uh, the, she was the first Chicana, but she was only the third um san antonian in the entire history i mean they started doing this in 1934 before the u.s even had a, a national poet laureate mm. so from 1934 until um 2011 i think is when rose became um, state poet laureate mm -hmm. uh, they had not had a latina but she was only, they'd only had two san antonians represented in all that time and most of them were way back in the 1930s Mm -hmm. So it was uh, it was a lot of excitement. Um, I loved it. It was a challenge. Um, I think I added them up for for our mayor at that time, Julian Castro. And, and I, at the end of my two years when I went and I said, OK, I have done three hundred and thirty two presentations. <laughs> wow. One <laughs> of the things I average one one every other day, but it didn't always work that way. I might be three in mm -hmm. one day. And then I'd get yeah. to no. <laughs> so. One of the things that you did as San Antonio Poet Laureate, which I think is so spectacular, you you curated this uh, competition, La Voz, right across yeah. across San Antonio, and it really started to bring together the idea of of written poetry and spoken word poetry. You know, like why was that such an such an important event? Uh, I mean, clearly in the aftermath, like it was it touched a lot of people and was great, but. Why did you feel like I have to bring this forward? Well, you know, I wanted the community to own it. You know, when they said that, you know, you as a poet laureate will be able to uh, decide which six programs you want. Um, I knew there were a few people in the world that I'd met as poets who weren't very humble. I don't mean here, but in other cities. No, you don't say. <laughs> I'm a grand poet and I shall come in and 
and give you the benefit of hearing my wonderful lines, right? Uh, I wanted them to know that everybody could get involved in this, that we come from a community that's had poetry here for centuries, that people would declamar at home in Spanish. These little kids would learn these 30 verse poems and every once in a while you run into somebody and they'll say, oh yes, my mother taught me this or my grandmother taught me this and they start reciting this thing that's incredibly long. They may not even know what all the words mean, but they learned because they were supposed to declamar. Mm -hmm. Or echando versos at the table, which is very common more down near Laredo and in the valley. <laughs> toss a couple of lines that rhyme and then somebody else would toss a couple of lines back. I mean, it's like after dinner entertainment, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted them to know that poetry was a part of us, that we didn't have to be highly educated um, uh, we didn't have to have a fancy job title. We didn't have to be big, important people in town in order to be poets uh, and involved in this. So we created a program that would allow anybody of any age. We had an under seven category. And I think the last category at the upper end was like over 55. Mm -hmm. And some people in there in their 80s. And I think we got a four-year-old at the young end going in and presenting in a way that was theatrical, dramatic, and reverberated with the culture. Mm -hmm. I like boring stuff. We don't want somebody who says, oh, to the purple butterfly of my loneliness, which has been convoluted through the rainbows. Of, I mean, you know, we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. cut through that. Tell me about you know, <laughs> some of the kind of stuff that Eddie Vega does, you know. Yeah, <laughs> cut to the chase. Let's be real. <laughs> got punched to it and got power uh, that they could relate to. Um, so it was it was very important to me that we get all parts of town and all ages involved, and we did. Um, we did another thing. I tried to incorporate as many other poets as possible into all of the events. We did a bunch of events that that were like uh, theatrical productions where we tied all of their poems together in the theatrical production. I think one was called uh, San Antonio de mi corazón, or else it was called San Antonio de mi pueblo. I forget, one of those. Um, and uh, and we, you know, did a big performance on stage with music and with people uh, presenting poems. And, and Andrea Volkop Sanderson was one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, Ariane Guerrero was another one that performed there. Uh, uh, Eddie Garza uh, did uh, one of his pieces. I'm trying to remember who all. We, we had a, a good representation of people. And um, why, why Lavoe? Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't. I thought you were finished. <laughs> but why is it why Lavoe to San Antonio, not the voice of San Antonio and uh, Mi Pueblo? You said why 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 was it necessary to to use the Spanish words? Well, if you're going to talk about San Antonio and capture San Antonio's spirit, we have never been a totally English speaking community. Mm -hmm. We've always been mixed with different languages, even when they were indigenous languages before any European arrival. This has been a, a crossroads. The rivers draw people from all over. So we mm -hmm. were always a mixing place here since even before we were known as San Antonio. And then we were Spanish speaking for many more years than we were English speaking. So it means that our community still has a lot of people um, who, who use Spanish at home as, as the language of personal things, the language of emotion, the language of, of familia. Um, and then they use English at school and at business for the formal things. We had to have it open 
for people mm -hmm. to express themselves however they wanted to. You know, like in the poem here, uh, language is dynamic. People, you know, who would criticize Tex-Mex don't realize that the English language is a Tex-Mex. It's a mixture of Saxon, Anglo-Saxon language and Norman French. It's two different languages that got squished together in a street language, the Tex-Mex of their time. And when Chaucer first wrote uh, Canterbury Tales, um, people said, you can't, you can't publish that. Nobody's going to read that street language, that stupid language that the people on the street talk that's mixed between between English and, and between Anglo-Saxon and, and French, mm -hmm. you know. And yet here we are, how many years later, Chaucer is considered one of our great founding fathers of the English language and English literature, mm -hmm. and, and people are speaking English. Yeah. So language is always changing. And in San Antonio, our even our non-Spanish speakers know certain words in Spanish. You know, they can find their way around and they know to ask for Buena Vista Street, not Buena Vista. You know, <laughs> they know how to get around town. Yeah. And they know how to order their enchiladas and they know about the difference between a corn tortilla and a flour tortilla. So, you know, um, we have a different cultural mix here. And mm -hmm. to honor that, to respect that, um, yeah. that particular thing had to be uh, done in both. And I've got to say something that happened recently, and we can't really claim the credit for it, but La Voz de San Antonio and The Voice have a little connection <laughs> recently. You may have seen it on The Voice where they get people come up and they either sing or dance or, or do whatever their talent is. Um, for the first time ever, they had a spoken word performer, mm -hmm. poet who came up and did his work and they loved it. Mm -hmm. said, yes. <laughs> so that's going to make a difference. It's going to turn things around. So maybe, maybe they heard about La Voz de San Antonio, but I don't mm. think so. Um, <laughs> It was just uh, a, a way of expressing the people's deepest feelings. You know, it's a cross yeah. between theater and, and and poetry. I mean, it's so important, this idea of like representation, right? To, to, to see people like yourselves out there, you know, and I, I have to out myself. Like I only just like three days ago started reading Bless Me Ultima, you know, like, cause it was, it was a book that was never presented to me as like literature, as something substantial, you know, in, in the canon of literature. And you have been a writer that has definitely, you know, kind of paved the way for Chicano writers, you know? Yeah, I got uh, all the rejection notices over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Just now breaking through, um, I, uh, I'm not gonna, uh, give a lot of details right now, but let me say, I just got an offer from Penguin Books that was a very serious, very generous, very exciting thing that just happened this last week. So it's not even all, uh, mm -hmm. you know, detailed out yet, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, it shouldn't have taken this long. It wouldn't mm -hmm. take this long for the young kids right now, but it's taken us this long as a nation to recognize that, no, there's nothing the matter with being Mexican American and being proud of it. No, mm -hmm. there's nothing the matter with, incorporating the beauty of Spanish words into your English, we do it with French, but then we consider mm -hmm. it class. Oh, you know, I, I committed a faux pas and it was such a bête noire when I saw that the elites were mm -hmm. uh, sanguist and, you know, we're using uh, all these, oh, the creme de la creme does this, you know, 
but uh -huh. and that's okay. But when we start mixing Spanish in, immediately they get the image that it's low class and whatever. We got to change that. So when everybody else is talking about French vanilla and French braids and French twist and all these kinds of things, I say to people, I want some of the Mexican vanilla. I want some of the Mexican cinnamon. Oh, we're gonna have a Mexican braid because mm -hmm. start Mexican oregano. I was talking to Jesse Cardona and he went to Starbucks and asked for a Chicano, a tall Chicano <laughs> and for the, the coffee. And uh, they didn't know what that was and he was making it up anyway. But it was yeah. kind of funny. He's like, why can't we have you have a cafe americano? Why can't you have a Chicano? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just listening to, and if, and I think this is required listening to anybody, uh, NPR and Serial and the New York Times just put out a new podcast called uh, Good White Parents, uh, which uh, really dives into the problem with the public school system. And they're looking at, you know, the school where like these white parents brought their their children to this school full of brown and black children and then raised like $10,000 to start a French bilingual program without, <laughs> without even realizing that, you know, half the students there were already bilingual, but they don't consider Spanish and English at the same level as French and English. They wanted to teach them French, mm -hmm. never, never questioned. And it, and it put the native, some of the native French speakers went there, put them in an advantage. And yeah, they were lecturing the bilingual parents about how it's so helpful to learn a second language. You know, mm -hmm. your child will now have a second language. So just like they disappear us from the textbooks, they disappear Spanish as a language, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm so glad that, you know, I have a second language. No, that two plus one makes three. <laughs> <laughs> someone, yeah. someone asked earlier in the comments, about italics uh when you write your poems do you put the, the spanish in italics i know that you had a i know we've talked about this before or i've seen this i've seen uh notes that you have made on the page about it yeah um you know i i'm old enough i've been through enough of the styles and the fads i've seen things go in and go out and so after a while you know you're not as committed like, oh, the law is this, because you see laws change, just like you see science changes. You know, eggs are bad for you, eggs are good for you, eggs are bad for you, eggs are good for you. You know, they keep going back and same thing with coffee and, and everything else. Um, so just like science discovers new things, uh, we as writers employ different things in different ways. So at one point, of course, all poetry had to be rhyming. It had to be metered. And we got past that. And now you got the people, oh, we don't want anything that's rhyming. I'm like, hey, you know, little kids really like the rhymes, you know? Mm -hmm. It makes it more predictable for them. So it's easier to read Dr. Susan, whatever, because the lines end up the same sound. Mm -hmm. uh, so what, what I used to do when I first started out, because remember, nobody taught us. I didn't take the recommended route. My bachelor's, master's, and PhD had nothing to do with writing. No poetry classes, no fiction, no nada, no screenplay classes, even though I have worked as a screenplay writer, uh, as a head writer for a, for a TV series. But what they were able um, to, to transmit to me 
was what good language sounded like. Because I took a lot of literature classes. I took mm. English literature and I took Spanish literature and I took French literature. And so I had a sense of what made good literature. So then I would try innovating just like they did on how to use a different language. So people would know that it's chocolate and not chocolate. So when I first started writing in the 70s, we'd write the Spanish words in italic and the English not in italic, or we'd write the poem in Spanish and the English words in italic, you know, just to <laughs> that it was a different language. Mm. Um, now, um, because pe more people recognize that what we speak is a code switched mix, mm. um, they they kind of complain about the the italics being in there and i'm like okay we can take them out it's not a big deal but i still use italics a lot for emphasis mm -hmm. i like to use it when it's a quote or it's emphasis when someone says to you no it's all in the molcajete you know it's emphasis that makes you put the italic in there mm -hmm. so you know i tell people i went to the same mfa program that shakespeare did <laughs> okay. Shakespeare didn't go to an MFA program. Yes. Yeah. Go to an MFA program. Cervantes didn't go to an MFA program. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, nothing. Nothing against education. I'm an educator, and I believe in good education. But, um, sometimes you have to experiment and find your own way to get things done. So there's very few things that I'll tell you. Oh, you can't do this in appointment. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. Poets are notorious for breaking the rules discovering their own rules mm -hmm. and for doing what feels right for them always mm -hmm. not this isn't a formula it's not like the nora roberts romance stories or the james patterson you know they're all the same they're predictable mm -hmm. um even pobrecito the dan brown i loved the da vinci code <laughs> <laughs> red angels and demons because i loved one book so much and mm -hmm. it was the same book just no. different you know, just plug in as one formula and you plug in different names and you do it the same way. Poets don't like that. Yeah. Poets and very good writers keep pushing the boundaries, creating new ways, making punctuation or spacing or capitalization or the language they switch to serve their purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the the example of of chocolates is, is is a perfect example because like if you don't italicize that, people will read chocolate, you know. And I think I don't remember if it was Vincent or David that we had on here that that made that point that like I don't italicize unless it's a word that I want to be sp written read in Spanish that is written exactly the same way in English or in Spanish. You know, it's this emphasis on like, but this isn't the way you see it. It's the way I say it, you know, and the way I hear it. Um, now you were uh, director of Mexican American studies uh, at Texas Lutheran College, you know, and like you said, like your your work has spanned it's the decades. The Mexican American Studies Center. Props to you, absolutely. You know, and this this idea of like the the Chicano movement, right, that has been going on for so long, has now kind of evolved into this Latinx movement, right? We now see like this worldview. It's not just Mexican Americans; it's Latinos and Latinas of of all kind of backgrounds. How have you seen that movement changed over the decades? Yeah. Well, there's there's a positive side to it and there's a negative side to it. Okay. Mm -hmm. I am Latinx, but I'm also Chicana. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't want them to put us all in little cans, like mm. beans. And whether it's pinto beans or green beans or navy beans, it just says beans. Mm -hmm. I don't want us to be forced to lose our identity. Um, the biggest danger in it is that because we were in little old podunk Texas and and the uh, Cuban-American population and the, the Puerto Rican population were along the East Coast, they mm -hmm. got a lot more attention. And when they needed a representative of a Hispanic population or, you know, what they called Hispanic at that time, um, they would appoint a Cuban-American or Nothing the matter with that, except that we are the largest subgroup under the Latinx population. We're like half, more than half of the Latinx country, population. Yeah. We're not represented enough. So um, we just have to be careful that, that we're not losing um, the beauty of, of our culture because we have a different approach. We have a different experience. We live in a different part of the country. Uh, now going everywhere uh, in New York. We're in New York. I went, I presented in Queens about two years ago. It was a lot of fun. And the, the biggest thing was the shock of the parents who were coming in and their little kids. I mean, they had Carmen Tafoya Day at the elementary school and the, the president of Queens College and the superintendent of the New York City Public Schools, which includes everything from the elementary through the colleges, showed up and it was a, such a big deal. And the kids were just so, ay, señora, ustedes mexicana como nosotros, you know. <laughs> I didn't have to do anything. All I had to do would be mexicana and bilingue. Mm -hmm. And I put out books, and that was it. They were like, oh, my God, you know, this is something special. So we, you know, we're changing. Our world is more mobile. We're going everywhere. We're in Alaska. We're in Hawaii. We're in Maine. We're in Vermont, you know. But at that time, we were much more heavily in the Southwest mm -hmm. and the Northwest. And now it's everywhere. It, we're everywhere. So because of that, we're having a nice mix in our world. We're having that diversity. We're learning from each other. And we're also learning to challenge our own biases so that we're not so rancho about, you know, no, pues ese, no, se porta muy feo y se comen las heces and all those things that we <laughs> But, you know, that are it's okay, it's okay. So we have um, uh, yeah. a lot to learn from that mix of peoples. Um, the Chicano movement is still going on. We didn't go away. We didn't disappear. Mm. Um, we've, some of us have gotten an education. Some of us have gone into different jobs in different areas and infiltrated and made the changes we could make, which especially um, influence the people that um, that are trying to get through. So that we go through the door and we hold the door open. So and they come behind yeah. you, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. And I think those things are, are things we've never forgotten. Few of us have forgotten. Emma Tenayuka had a nice um, word for it. She said, some of us have accommodated ourselves rather well. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which sacrificed what they believed in in the old days just so that they would be nice and comfortable in positions. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I see the same struggle going on. We have made a lot of differences. A lot of people criticize, say, well, we didn't get anything done. We're still fighting the same battle. Well, maybe fighting the same war, but we've won a lot of battles.
Mm-hmm. We're still like 3% of children's books, for instance, that are published in the U.S., 3% have a Latinx author or illustrator, either one, 3%. We're a lot larger than that in the population. That's mm-hmm. not acceptable. But if we go back to the time of the Chicano movement, we didn't even have that 3%. Yeah. You know, we were like 0.001. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've we've made a change. We've grown tremendously. We're at the colleges. You can go out to UTSA and you walk around and it's full of Chicanos and Texas A&M San Antonio is full of Chicanos and even UT Austin, the, the white ivory tower on the hill, mm-hmm. uh, you know, has a, a very good representation of Latinx and Black. Uh, you know, and, and non-rich people, because that too was something else. That, that mm-hmm. we do, do you economic yeah. treatments, not just ethnic You know, one of the things that's happened so much, probably because you know, I think two things. One is social media, and the other one, uh, especially for spoken word artists, is uh, going some to something like the National Poetry Slam. You know, so events, so where that we have communities of poets. Uh, who are all communicating right now with each other um, across the country uh, and, and seeking commonality and all that? Did you were you part of a community of poets uh, or writers in the Chicano movement? And how did you all handle that? And who were and, and also like if you want to name drop, like who were some of the? <laughs> uh, I, I'm very upset at some of them scholarly studies that come out on the Chicano movement, they act like the only thing that counts in the movement was political action. And they don't realize that in order to get that political action, you had to conscientizar people. You had to get the people aware. And the way we got people aware was exactly slam type poets before we had the word slam poetry. We we didn't call it slam poetry, but they were Chicano poets. And we'd get on stage, people like Neftali. Neftali and I were at about 10,000 different programs together probably in the 1970s. And you know how dramatic he is and oh, and he's moving around on stage and he's just pulling them in. And and uh, uh, we had, you know, uh, cultural arts that changed the people's minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had bands, conjuntos, that were singing yeah, uh, soy mexicano y soy tejano de acá de este lado. You know, things that they were helping people understand and define who they were. They were making jokes about it. They were laughing, saying, I'm Mexican American. And, you know, they were uh, just introducing our identity in a public place. Mm-hmm. And so the artists, the actors, the writers, the musicians, you know, everybody um, was helping to make people aware. Mm-hmm. So we had a community of poets um, who actually uh, put out newspapers, the Chicano Times, uh, Caracol uh, Magazine, uh, mm-hmm. uh, before Caracol was one called Magazine. Uh, this was stunning for us. It was exciting. And so we pulled together. I don't say we were crowds of 10,000 but we were significant uh, crowds and a lot of programs and we would be very creative because nobody had any funds to do anything with. We didn't have any sponsorship from the city. 
We didn't have universities asking us to come in and present things. We were doing it however we could. Oh, there's an old church that that's broken down and they're going to be doing construction on it. But the congregation says they don't mind if we meet there. So we get in there. We're we're stepping over concrete blocks and <laughs> you know uh, pieces of wood with nails in them and whatever to try and get into the perfect position where we can do a presentation. So yes. Um, there were uh, Benji Vigil, uh, now in Houston, uh, Ines Hernandez Tovar, Angela de Hoyos, who later went on to create uh, a press, M&A Editions, um, but had been writing poetry since the 1930s, actually, mm -hmm. here in San Antonio. Um, mm -hmm. And she was a Chicana. And myself, Reyes Cárdenas, Cecilia Garcia Camarillo, uh, Cesar Martinez, who at that time we thought was just a photographer. Oh, he takes real good photos, you know. Hey, you got to do, do something with that eye, you know. Um, now a, a distinguished uh, artist. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it was a group that would get together. Juan Tejeda was, was part of that group. And uh, so, yeah, we had a tight community. We just didn't have a lot of funding. Mm -hmm. So we create our own funding. Yeah. Well, I mean, talk about building a community. You were one of the co-founders of Canto Mundo, you know, yes. and can you talk about the, the impetus for starting that and why a program like that has been so important for our comunidad? You know, uh, Pablo Martinez and, um, and Norma Cantu got to talking. And I, I understand because I wasn't in the room. It was just the two of them. And then they called me, and then they called uh, Celeste Guzman Mendoza and uh, Deborah Paredes, and we were talking about how come the Blacks have Cave Canem, this national group to uh, present, uh, to create a space, to do workshops, to bring in speakers, to create a community. Um, the Asians have uh, Kundiman, and we don't have anything. You know, and we need something and we need it now. And so we were so insistent that we decided to start hammering things out. Well, if it were to create, how could we do it? Well, if we had, okay, if we keep it a small number, which made us some enemies, because <laughs> everybody, we're, what if we only bring in 30 fellows, 30, and we have two faculty, we can afford to pay the two faculty for their trip and da, da, da. We haven't got the money yet, but we'll get it. We'll get it from someplace. Maybe Southwest Airlines will give us a ticket. <laughs> and we were starting from zero. Yeah. And we worked very hard to have it be very diverse. Um, it was a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience for me. I feel very honored to have been part of that group. And we were just pushing to, to bring everyone, to get the word out on the East Coast, West Coast, in the rural areas, in, in the Southwest, everywhere. Um, and so that first mix of people was a truly wonderful mix and our speakers were mixed as well and we even brought in toy Derricote, a wonderful african-american poet of who had been who had helped found uh Kabe Khan. Mm -hmm. we brought her in as a speaker and you know it was it was a, a a very exciting and i think not perfect because you know five people with no funding <laughs> you know, nothing you know. is so right. oh well i teach at ut so maybe they'll let me use the the rooms for this maybe we could use the room so at first we had them you know wherever we could afford uh, the uh the very first one was in albuquerque new mexico because the mexican-american cultural center there allowed us to use it for free mm -hmm. so we all flew into 
or drove in or whatever to Albuquerque. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and then we had it at UT for a couple of years. And then finally it went to New York when Deborah Paredes joined the faculty at Columbia. And we had a plan for how long we would be on before we'd get off. We'd stay with it long enough to get it on the ground and then turn it over. So, uh, I think, uh, Pablo was on one year and Norma was on two years on the director council. And I was on three years and then they started bringing in new blood, people from the East Coast, from the West Coast, um, and uh, and Deb and Celeste had both said, we can't give more than 10 years to this, to what yeah. 10 years it went off, which was about a year ago. And there's, you know, there's a lot of complaints now. They're saying, you didn't have any Afro-Latinos on the directing board. Well, first of all, there weren't a lot of Afro-Latino poets in the entire state of Texas at that time who we knew or who were willing to give up years of their life in an unpaid fashion to do these things. And so, um, you know, we just, we did the best we could on it. And so mm -hmm. now them to keep it getting better and better. You know, it brings in people from all over. I just yeah. have to remind people, um, it's so easy to be critical. And I've seen so many things where these poets are mad at those poets. I mean, it, it went back to the Floricantos. We used to have the Floricantos and, Ricardo Sanchez and Alurista couldn't stand each other. So it was always a big struggle between them. So Ricardo Sanchez would go, but then he'd say, I'm going to start my own thing. Alurista started this Floricanza, so I'm going to start Canto al Pueblo. So he had his thing apart. And then he'd go back and he'd make a report on it on this national Hispanic magazine called La Luz. And he would say, he called Floricanto Florimoco, and he called Alurista La Brista, and he cut down, you know. It, <laughs> long way of, you know, you're not like me. No, we're not. We're not all alike. We're very yeah. diverse. And I think we've made a lot of progress in those areas and we have a lot more to go. Now, was there, was is Ricardo Sanchez the one who wrote uh, the Sasquatch Centennial? No. I'm not sure. The Sasquatch uh, Centennial, you know what I'm talking he, about? The poet, he was one of the poets that had been in jail and Canto y Oro, no. Was that it? I think so. Canto y Oro, mi vida, mi son, I'm, I'm I forgetting. Think that, I think but, I heard um, you read once. Yeah, the... yeah, he had a lot of, um, uh, and he was offered, a, one of the major publishers offered him a contract. And he said, no, not unless you allow all my hermanos y hermanas chicanas to also have opportunities to be published, I will not publish with you. And mm. all of us, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, you know, there, there were struggles, like they're always is starting something up. Mm -hmm. And there'll still continue to be struggles. Yeah. But, you know, we've made a lot of progress and we got a ton more. Yeah. That needs to yeah, no, you've de you've definitely created a, a platform for, for voices to be lifted. Uh, you have held a lot of different positions in your tenure, you know, both in faculty and administrative positions. I'm curious, personally, what was the position, what was your favorite position, you know, to hold? And San Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> that was really fun. It really was fun and everybody was in on it and it was a, a community, you could feel the community. State Poet Laureate wasn't half as much fun as being City Poet Laureate. Mm. The state, they, you walk into the Senate and the, you know, State Senate, well, first they take you to the State House and they warn you ahead of time, nobody pays attention to anything. So 
you're like a bunch of little kids, you know, with the teacher out of the room. And sure enough, the teacher was in the room. The guy at the front is hitting the gavel, trying to quiet it down. And then he's passing it to somebody's grandson who came to visit. The grandson's hitting the gavel. And all of them were talking. Are you going to vote for me if you vote for my thing on this and I'll vote for you on that? Nobody's paying attention to the state poet laureates and the state musicians and the state sculptors that all of And they do it once every two years so they don't have to mess with you. Yeah, this year's and next year's. Here they are, you know. And they stand all of you up there and they declare you and they take a picture and then you walk off. That's it. And then they take you to the Senate and they're all very quiet and obedient. If they get noisy, the guy with the gavel goes, can we have some order in here, gentlemen? And then they all sit and listen and you don't even get down on the Senate floor. You're up in the balcony, you know? And when they call your name, they start talking about Carmen Tafoya is, and they, they do the whole uh, bio and whatever. And you stand up in the balcony and they applaud you and then you sit down. And so it's all very controlled. And then the day is over and you go home and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there's no backing. There's no support, mm. no advertisement. Where's the city of San Antonio? I was on NPR all the time. They were saying, you know, La Voz de San Antonio, come to La Voz de San Antonio, sponsored by San Antonio's first poet, Laura Carmen Tavoya. So the city was purchasing those advertisement spots. Mm. Uh, so that people would hear about it, so people would get involved. Um, I remember I walked into Tito's down in Southtown for, for some breakfast tacos. And my husband and I walked in, and we were just about to sit down at the table when these three Anglo ladies from across the room come running at us. I thought, oh, my God, are they attacking? I mean, do we need to get some guns or what? You know? And they come running, oh, that's our poet laureate. You know, <laughs> Rockstar, you had Rockstar status. Yeah, that was my favorite. I don't know if you'd call it an administrative job. <laughs> Your favorite position you held. It was a position, yes, it was that. a position. It was my favorite one ever. Mm. And probably the favorite uh, officially administrative thing was back at the Chicano Studies Center at Texas Lutheran in 1970. Mm. <laughs> the dinosaurs because nobody knew what a Mexican-American Studies Center was supposed to do, me included. So we did it all. Anything our imagination could come up with, mm -hmm. we did. And that made it very creative. And some of those programs are still going on today. You know, so. I yeah. Can't. Now, since there weren't a lot of other uh, Chicano or Lat Latinx uh, mm -hmm. poets out there for you to influence you, it's not them, who were the ones that influenced you? Yeah, in the Chicano movement, I would say uh, Lurista would definitely be one, Reyes Cárdenas would be another, Cecilio García Camarillo, Angela de Hoyos, you know, all the other poets, the ones who would read, I would hear their work and it would it would influence me, but there wasn't a lot of stuff in print. The, um, the three big winners of the Premio Aslan were... Uh, uh, Tomás Rivera, Rudy Anaya, and Rolando Hinojosa, they won the first three prizes. So we thought they were like gods or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, they influenced us as well. But for poets, um, we were, I was reading Ernesto Padilla and Yolanda Luera from California, uh, Juan Felipe Herrera. I remember him as a young kid, you know, skinny young kid, uh, probably still in college, I'm guessing. Um, because of the Floricantos, we got to meet each other. 
uh, Lalo Delgado was very influential um, because each came with their own heart. And writing and poetry especially has to come from who you are. Mm -hmm. It has to come from your feelings. I, I, I'm 100% with E.E. E. Cummings when he said, uh, you know, poetry is about feeling. Because when you feel, you're nobody but yourself. When you write or think or believe, you're a whole bunch of other people. But poetry is not about thinking or believing or knowing. It's about feeling. So mm -hmm. it's you have to dig deep. You have to be honest. And that's what makes poets also more dangerous politically. Um, so in many, many instances throughout history and in today's world, the poets end up in jail because of what they say. Mm -hmm. Because they they have to speak the truth. Yeah. And that's one of the characteristics of good poetry. Yeah. It's not game playing. It's not formula following. It seeks to break its own boundaries, create its own rules. And I think the early Chicano movement writers as being extremely creative, not just at mixing languages, but new forms. I mean, Reyes came out with anti-bicicleta haiku. You know, we're like, what? So it's two columns, and you write some words on this one and some words on this one, so you can either read it this way and this way, or you read it across and back, and then the haiku is, you know, I'm like, huh? And then <laughs> Cecilia was talking about whale poetry, and I was talking about voice poetry, that it yeah. had to come up the voices of little kids or old people or whatever to make it, you know, we were, we were experimenting with what can you do with words? Yeah. I love that you bring up the, 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 the politics of poetry, you know, and you talk about your influences and you have definitely influenced many people and opened the doors for so many. And now we see writers like, like Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, 12 years ago wrote In the Heights, now Hamilton, which is its own form of poetry. What do you see as the future of Latinx poetry and Latinx writing? I think that, that there's no limit. I don't think we can even envision what new, I mean, now we're exploring the forms of media that we've never used that much before. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, we used phones, but we weren't doing conferences and rosaries on Zoom. And, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, and now we are, you know? Uh, so I think that people are going to begin to be able to take that poetry maybe mix it with art, cross the, the, the genres, cross mm -hmm. the borders of the genres and, and go places that they haven't gone before. Maybe they're going to, they're already the jazz poets here in San Antonio, mix in the music with the poetry. Uh, I know a lot of us like to do uh, little PowerPoints in the background where you got artwork going while you're reading, you know, poetry or, you know, just play with the stage. Yeah. Uh, now that we're at home, we're creating stages at home, you know, mm -hmm. so um, I just think the future is wide open. I can't even envision it. I mean, I couldn't have envisioned the web when they were first explaining it to me. I mean, you're, you're doing your own charge for the long distance emails. No, they don't charge. You just pay your, you know, <laughs> I mean, you're doing your own form of like cross genre in, right? Yeah. Like you, yeah. you're dabbling in other, talk a little bit about those projects that you got going on. Um, I just finished a novel in verse called Guerrera. And um, it's, uh, it's told by a young woman, a 12 year old woman who is decolonizing her mind. 
And she's asking the questions. Like her history teacher gets it all the time. Like, wait a minute, Mr. Mason. How come you said that Columbus discovered America if there were all these other people that were here first? So how come they didn't discover him instead of him discovering them? And so she's starting to get a little sassier and a little sassier and she's starting to question things. Um, it's a lot of fun. And it also has a lot of uh, drama in it because her own father gets deported in the middle of it. Um, so she questions things like International Workers' Day. I'm not gonna celebrate International Workers' Day. My dad's an international worker. He works over there and he works over here and you're not celebrating him, you know? And how can we celebrate Labor Day when some people get to take the day off and then other people have to go to work to support their families? Mm -hmm. So she is really questioning everything. Um, so my novel in verse, it's, it's a lot of fun and it's playful and it goes between her writing her calendar poems and her writing her, um, oh. her, her emotions and the things that are going on in her life. Um, the, uh, when I started writing, nobody talked about flash fiction, mm. you know? They weren't even talking about prose poems back then. And yet some of the things I was doing were, were poems. I knew there were poems, but they looked like prose. And we didn't have a word for it, you know? So yeah. I wrote it anyway. I don't know what it is, but I wrote it, you know? Um, and then we started doing the theatrical stuff. And I, um, Alurista was one who told me back in, I guess, the 1980s, he said, Carmen, every time you read, you do something with your voice. And I said, what? And he said, no, no, you do something. Like you're reading the old man and it sounds like an old man. And you're reading the little kid and it sounds like a little kid. And I said, well, yeah, I'm not going to read the little kid that sound like an old lady. You know, it's everybody's got their own voice. And it's no, but you do something with your voice. And um, so about 10 years later, I was always being asked uh, to go speak to conferences and give a keynote or whatever. And then usually I'd stick a poem in towards the end or something. And I decided I would do something a little different. And uh, so... I came in dressed as the viejita, interrupting while they're introducing the keynote speaker, Dr. Carmen Tapoya. And so this viejita <laughs> con chanclas y su rebozo and her glasses and her bastón comes in. Excuse me, ustedes no saben dónde queda el bastón que va para la calle Guadalupe. And you know, <laughs> so I end up on stage and then I incorporate the poems into the characters. I actually present them, you know, theatrically. You know, so the voice poetry that I had started with way back when became the Pachuquita on stage and the, the mm. high school dropout and, you know, the little kid and, and, and the little girl in first grade whose name gets changed. Um, and um, it was very effective. So, but it was cross-genre. It was poetry put on stage. Yeah. And I love that. It is it's just <laughs> another way to continue to, to elevate you know, the, the written word and, and continue to spread it to you have been uh, an amazing trailblazer and inspiration for so many people, you know, and I want to thank you for, for spending this hour with us. Uh, one more thing is that, uh, you know, Chris Billings says that poets uh, have to tell the truth. It's a blessing and a curse. And you talked about uh, truth to power, uh, you know, speaking truth to power poets doing that. And I have to acknowledge somebody uh, corrected me. It was, it was Jose Montalvo that did the, the Sasquatch Centennial. And um, it was 1986, and they, ha they asked for a poem 
for the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary of, the, of, of Texas. And uh, he wrote that one instead. And then speaking truth to power, from, from what I heard of the story, they pulled their, the, the, the city pulled their funding. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that story or if you have a insight on it. Yeah, I was I'm not in state at that time. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I was in California for a while in Arizona and then down the valley, worked my way back to San Antonio. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, uh, but, but that's the importance of a poet is to like do that and maybe risk, and it was a big risk, I guess, because the city, you know, you might upset some people, uh, like, like right. he did apparently. Right. A lot of people got upset by things like that. Um, yeah, and and yet we have to, it's our responsibility. Mm -hmm. There's that 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 quote, uh, well-behaved women seldom make history, you know, <laughs> go ahead and make some waves. And you absolutely definitely have, Carmen. So thank you for everything you've done in your career and as a writer. And thank you for this past hour of conversation. It's been absolutely phenomenal and inspirational. Uh, and we would love nothing more if you would please just close us out with one more poem. Okay. I love, um, I love giving honor to the people to la, la gente, el pueblo, uh, the common people. And if anything in my writing can make others look at them with more respect or more dignity, then I'll have accomplished what I set out to do. Um, this one's called El Mercado, the farmer's market. In the days when it really was a farmer's market, and you would go there and people would have their little pickup truck with the vegetables in the back and they would be selling them and they would come on a daily basis, especially on the weekends to sell their, their produce. Uh, so it takes place um, with two workers where there's usually three workers, three different people that sell their wares next to each other. And in this one, uh, two of the workers are talking to each other and the third one is not there. Molka this all ready to be cured with little grains of rice. Velvet pictures for your living room, senora. Just look at this magnificent tiger here. Or acá, Jesus with his crown of thrones. Or el presidente Kennedy. Oh, he was so good to us Mexicanos. Get it for your comadre, the one that's so involved in last neighborhood meetings. Excuse me, do you have some brayros? Those great big ones, you know? Chiles, fresh, hot, and at a good price. Chile petim, serranos, jalapeños, chile colorado, all ground up already. Excuse me, are these hot? It feels so hot already. Ay, ella que quería. Oh, pues no importa. It's bugging me so hot. My father used to call these days la canicula, the dog days. La tencha, why isn't she here today? Did she miss a ride? Oh, okay, you didn't hear, hombre. Híjole, what a tragedy. It's that her brother, the one that lives with her, he went to the Social Security office so he could get paid his retirement and that they can't pay him, they said, because his boss hadn't taken out anything for Social Security after 40 years. And that his chest is hurting him and his chest is hurting him, but he doesn't want to go to the doctor. Because he doesn't have the conqueda with what, you know, and he's still not la 65 for la Medicare. So he just kept quiet and took it and didn't complain no more. Is it far from here to the Alamo? Y que después, yesterday, when la tencha gets home, 
with that big old mountain of paper flowers in her arms, the one she sells, you know, that the gringos like so much. Well, on getting inside the door loaded down with everything and not seeing what was there, she stumbles on the body of her brother on the floor and she falls on top of him con las flores y todo and the poor guy's dead or not. Hijo, well, que la tencha feels like dying of pena. Que why didn't she make him go to the doctor and pay it for him a little down payments or something like the layaway at the stores or algo? All feeling bad, poor thing. Hijo, que vergüenza, hombre. Yeah, la poor tencha. Oye, if you go by her home, bring me the flowers or whatever she has to sell. I'll sell them for her here. So the poor thing has for her expenses. Okay, hermano. And the corn and the fruit that I don't sell today, I'll take it to her. After all, okay, tomorrow is another load. Yeah, tomorrow is another load. Así es la vida. Yeah, that's life. Molcajetes, all ready to be cured with little grains of rice, senora. Mmm. <laughs> Thank you, thank you so much for coming and uh, spending this a uh, little bit more than an hour with us uh, and sharing your work and all of your insights. Hmm. Uh, and, and it's been great. Thank Grazie. you. Grazie. Grazie <laughs> 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 for todo lo que has hecho. Thank you so much. much. Merci. We'll get to these friends. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Muchas gracias, Carmen. Thank you so much for being here with us. It has been absolutely a pleasure. Carmen Tapoya, everybody. Thank you. You poets keep on writing. You know, we do what we can. <laughs> All right. So for those of us, who, for those of you who don't know, this month we are focusing on educators. Carmen, uh, who has held many positions in, in the education field and just as existing as a person, has educated us on how to be. Uh, so, Eddie, who do we have coming up next week? Well, we have an educator and a poet, uh, Big Ant. Mm. Who, uh, he's from like Dallas, but he lives here now. And he's uh, San Antonio. He's <laughs> San Antonio now. He was on a San Antonio team of some sort. So yeah, he 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 can be claimed as San Antonio. Uh, mm. But yeah, he's doing some great stuff in education. I think he's starting like his own school. Or- he is he is? We'll talk about it next week. But he yeah. just got a. I, I don't know if grant is the right word, but he just got the whatever the go ahead. The wherewithal. To open up to be principal of his own school, he has been, you know, like a principal of sorts at a middle and elementary school out in the West Side for the past year or so. Um, I'm just—he's such a phenomenal poet and such. And he's some great stuff. Yeah, yeah. So um, yes. poetry-wise, I, I love his stuff. So mm-hmm. he, he writes about family and uh, his diet, and uh, yeah, lots of great topics. So that's coming up next week. We have a phenomenal lineup of educators uh, for you this uh, month of August. So please tune in. Um, if you want to know more about what we are doing, you can, of course, follow the Blah Poetry Spot on Facebook, which if you're watching this or listening to this, you probably do. Uh, you can also look us up on Instagram, Write Art Out. And if you want to hear more of these conversations that we have had with poets throughout the past couple of months, we are now available on any podcast service out there. Uh, We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Music. We're on Google. And I don't know what else is out there, but we're out there. Just search for Blah Poetry on any podcast app, and you can find all the episodes 
most of the episodes, trying to get them uploaded uh, on your podcast. So go listen. Listen to something. Listen to something. Exactly. We're doing stuff over here at Write Art Out and the Blah Poetry Spot. So if you want more information, just make sure you follow, make sure you subscribe, like, comment, review, whatever you need to do. But like, you know, join us on this fantastic uh, virtual literal voyage that we are taking for the foreseeable future because we're not going anywhere for <laughs> <laughs> In any case, uh, that, that was Eddie Vega. And that was Chico Dunia. Close <laughs> <laughs> this has been words and shit. Thank you so much, y'all. Thank you for joining us. Y'all have a good night. Stay good safe. Good night, everybody. Yes.